What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Happy Heresies and welcome to the Desert of the Real. My name is Miguel Connor and I am your Pompadus of Gnosis. Can you smell the colitas rising up through the air of a world gone mad? How about a special show to help you out? A special midsummer show or maybe winter wherever you are. But it's something I really wanted to share with you. It's from our Finding Hermes private group, the bi-monthly exclusive meetings where I do give presentations, guest give presentations, and we have some very cool Q&A sessions on Gnosticism and other heresy. Again, I really wanted to share this because it's one of my favorite topics and an individual, actually two individuals, who are basically patron saints of Aeon Bight. That is the father of all heresy and his consort and the father of all Gnosticism and his consort. And the individuals are Simon Magus and Helen of Tyre. I still feel that those two uh, individuals who are so important for any modern Gnosis, for an understanding of Gnosticism, are still very overlooked and misunderstood. And this presentation puts it all on the table for you. So I think you'll get a lot out of it. As a bonus for all subscribers, I'll include, whether it's video or the audio version, the Q&A we had afterwards, and it's always, well, I always get some very penetrating questions and extra insights, and so will you. As a further bonus, I'm going to bring in some guests, past interviews from guests who are cited among many in the presentation. First, we'll have Robert Price talking about Simon Magus, and he's, uh, well, he's talked a lot or included Simon Magus in many of his books, including The Amazing Colossal Apostle and the Pre-Nicene New Testament. After that, I'm going to include the excerpt from an interview I did with the amazing Clive Prince and Lynn Picknett from their also amazing book, When God Had a Wife. And they will also bring insights galore on Simon, Magus, and Ellen. And, well, this will also include uh, Sophia, Gnosticism, and so much more. It's all related, and it's all excellent. I don't want to take up any more of your chronos, because I'm excited about this. If you get a chance and you can, please join our Finding Hermes program where there's just a ton of presentations on Gnosticism, the ritual, sex, and so much. And again, we just have a blast uh, every month with Q&A, group discussions, and all that stuff. Let's get to this birdie num num awesomeness with the presentation, with my presentation on Simon Magus.
Welcome, everybody, officially to the Finding Hermes program and officially, not unofficially, to uh, the presentation tonight, which is Finding Simon Magus. Very excited about this. And some of you may be wondering, why are we looking for Simon Magus at all? Well, that's the case I will be making tonight about his importance and how he is essential to any Gnostic thought and perhaps even any esoteric thought. So let's uh, let's go on this journey to find our Simon Magus, outer and inner, as you shall see. As I once said, all roads lead to Simon Magus. And that may be, sound like a strange concept, but it does relate to my experience and how I learned about Gnosticism. Many moons ago, I, when I started learning about Gnosticism, the figures, the Nag Hammadi library, all that, I had, I realized two, you might say, opposing ideas out there. And it confounded me a bit. One was that as I studied about the Gnostics, as I, as I read their texts, it seemed there was always Simon Magus at the end of everything. It seemed somehow he was in the background of all these texts, ideologies, polemics, whatever you want to call it. He was there. And that's something I will show you tonight, how he just kept appearing everywhere. The other one was that it seemed that in modern Gnostic uh, circles, and this included churches, organization, websites, there was very little mention of Simon Magus. It's almost like he was there, but he was sort of vanish, uh, transparent, but he was basically ignored. And that was very odd to me. But regardless, part of the podcasts and other uh, content I've created was to sort of elevate Simon Magus and to bring him more to the forefront for all communities there. So, but all roads lead to Simon Magus is certainly a very, uh, you might say, almost bombastic uh, remark, but that's what I will be proving tonight, the essential importance of Simon Magus, as I mentioned. And uh, I must admit that at the end of the day, a lot of what I'm doing is speculation uh, because there is still so much that is hidden. But as Robert Price said, we all we're doing here with figures like Simon Magus is we're just connecting the dots, but there's a lot of dots to connect. There is a constellation of dots. In fact, there is a lot of smoke where there has to be a huge fire, and that fire is Simon Magus, and that's the fire we will find out about, and you'll see that the theme of fire is very important, so don't forget it. So, to start out, we will find out about Simon Magus in church history. And there is a lot of Simon Magus in church history from all perspectives, theological, legend, and the writings of the church fathers. He's a big figure. Simon Magus appears in the Bible, and that's, uh, that's a way that most people first encounter Simon Magus, and for some people, that's the only time they encounter Simon Magus. He specifically appears in Acts chapter 8, verses 9 to 24. I have the passage here, but I'm not going to read it to you. I'm just going to summarize real quickly. 
And basically what happens is that uh, the author describes Simon in Samaria. He's a Samaritan. He's known as the great power of God. And he's out there just casting all this incredible magic, just going nuts with all these wonders and magical tricks. I mean, he's like a, a Gandalf, a Doctor Strange, a 20th level magician. He is the shit, if you would, when it comes to magic. And he's impressing the other Samaritans. But lo and behold comes the Apostle Philip. He's out there trying to convert, and he does a good job. He starts converting Samaritans to Christianity. He uh, basically baptizes them and talks to them, and they're impressed. Simon is impressed, too, and he is allowed. He allows himself to be baptized, and he becomes basically a uh, bestie with uh, Philip, and they're hanging out. Lo and behold, what happens next is that uh, the other apostles hear about how well it's going in Samaria, so they show up. Peter shows up, and John, and the others, and they take it up a notch. They start putting their hands on many of the Samaritans and uh, bringing down the Holy Spirit upon them. They are saved. Uh, it's very impressive, too. Simon notices this Holy Spirit going down in their heads and goes up to Peter and says, you know, hey, Peter, can I have some of that Holy Spirit for myself? I don't even mind uh, PayPaling you or Venmoing you. Just uh, give me some of that Holy Spirit. And Peter gets all angry. And Peter says this in this passage, thy money perish with thee. Because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money, thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thine heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee, for I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness, and in the bond of iniquity. And basically, Simon says, oh, crap, I really screwed up, and please pray for me. And he sort of wanders off stage all with his shoulders down and all butthurt. And basically, that's it. That's how it ends. And in fact, the concept of uh, simony came from this passage. It's a medieval concept that basically says uh, uh, that it's a sin to try to purchase your way in any position in the church or purchase your way into heaven or anything like that. And needless to say, uh, this concept came out in the 13th century and the Catholic church wasn't exactly good at following their own, this new sin based on Simon Magus. So that's Simon Magus. And keep in mind that passage I just said, because we're going to come back to it because there are some amazing secrets in it. So what does that tell us? What does this passage tell us? Well, it tells us that Simon was a contemporary of Jesus and Paul. He was doing his magic in Samaria in the first century. He is portrayed as a baptized Christian. Thus, the church saw him as legitimate. And you see that picture there? Jesus approves of Simon Magus. Simon definitely saw himself as a Christian. He was baptized by Philip. So that's amazing. But we also have to consider, too, if you look at the fourth, the fourth uh, bullet, that this is a classic uh, trick the church did when there was a figure out there that was just too popular to be erased from history. 
um, the church basically had to, uh, uh, you might say, uh, co-opt this individual and then marginalize this individual in their texts. So they adopted him and then brought him down a few notches. You see this with Mary Magdalene in the New Testament. She was probably a community leader. She was a uh, very close to Jesus, perhaps the most important apostle. So the church had to bring her into the New Testament and rewrite her as this woman who had seven demons and sort of is not even middle management, but lower min middle management when it comes to the Jesus movement. Same with Thomas. Thomas probably had a community, a Gnostic community around him. And uh, there were a lot of texts being written uh, not about Thomas, but through Thomas, and therefore they brought him into the New Testament and made him into doubting Thomas, this guy who you couldn't trust, who lost, who had a lapse of faith, and so forth. So that's what they did with Simon Magus. They, he was a big figure. They brought him in, and they sort of, uh, yeah, marginalized him. And it also shows, too, or what the church or what Luke is trying to show in Acts of the Apostles is that the Samaritans were all subordinate to the new church, that they were part of the new Christian movement and believed in all the stuff. So this is what we get out of Acts of the Apostles. And again, there's always a lot going on, and there's a lot more going on, as you will see. So the church fathers certainly wrote a lot about Simon Magus. Uh, they wrote uh, yeah, endlessly for centuries. Um, Irenaeus calls Simon Magus and is against heresies, the father of all heresies. One second. Sorry, a uh, little pause here. But he was called the father of all heresies. He was also the font of all Gnosticism by Irenaeus and other heresy hunters. He caught the wrath of so many church fathers after that and before that. These include Hippolytus, Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Tertullian, Epiphanius, and more. But those are the main ones. And uh, I'm quoting here David R. Cartledge, who's a professor of religion at Maryville College, Tennessee. And he wrote, Simon Magus is arguably the worst of the bad guys in the history of the church. And this is true. He got a lot of attention. He was the James Bond villain of the early church. The church fathers saw him basically worse than Valentinus, worse than Marcion. Uh, worse than Satan, worse than Judas. Uh, Simon Magus was the arch enemy of the church in the beginning. And there is a lot written about this. So now we'll get into Justin Martyr. Martyr. Oh, one more thing before we do this that I should mention, which cracks me up, is that um, what's funny is that one thing that the church always did is that they uh, always said that Gnosticism was a, a breakaway heretical movement. Gnosticism came after Christianity and blah, blah, blah. But if we trust Acts of the Apostles, what we see is that church is admitting that Simon Magus is a contemporary of Jesus and Paul. He is there 
And remember, Philip was not uh, was not very scared or didn't see a problem with Simon Magus using magic. Neither did Peter. The problem is when he tried to buy the Holy Spirit. So that's a very interesting uh, thing to to uh, see too. And it also should be mentioned that the Samaritans were, in case you didn't know, the Samaritans were, you might say, a marginal or heretical Jewish group. They, um, what they claim that they were the survivors of the 10 tribes that were taken prisoner, wiped out uh, by the Assyrian Empire, and they either survived or they came back. And they were Jewish, but they were considered sort of, uh, again, marginal, heretical Jews. They had different uh, holy texts slightly. They had different holy places, like instead of Jerusalem, they saw Mount Gerzuban, I believe it was called as a holy place. And Simon was a Samaritan too. So let's, uh, let's get a little bit more granular, granular with the uh, church fathers. The first church father to talk about Simon Magus is Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr is actually from Samaria too. So around the year 150 AD, middle of the second century, he starts to encounter followers of Simon Magus. He calls them the Simonians. And he basically starts saying that uh, Simon was a magic worker and controller of demons. Original, originally from the village of Gita in Samaria. And uh, the, on an interesting sort of side note, uh, according to Justin Martyr, Simon considered himself a god and was honored with a statue. The statue was erected in the river Tiber between two bridges with the following inscription in Latin, Simonio Dio Santo. But actually, uh, Justin Martyr is wrong because... The statue actually belonged to a lightning god called Simu Sankas. So it's interesting how the mistake that made, but for a while, people really did think that there was a church erected honoring Simon in Rome. Justin Martyr introduces the idea of Simon's consort, Ellen, a former prostitute of Tyre, originally his first thought, or Enoya, and uh, when and when Simon was God, remember Simon and Acts is the great power of God. He's the manifestation of God on earth. And Ellen is his manifestation, his female counterpart. And we'll get more into that very soon. But soon after Justin Martyr, novelized legends of Simon Magus begin to appear and spread across the empire. Many of these include his fight with Peter and these legends and writings begin to spread in the late second century and uh, really take hold again of the early Christian church, saying Simon with Simon Magus again as the great Bond villain, the Thanos or Sauron of the early church. So now let's look at Irenaeus, who's writing about a generation after uh, Justin Martyr. Irenaeus definitely expands a lot of these uh, ideas about Simon Magus. And again, he quotes Acts of the Apostles. Simon referred to himself as the great power, the manifestation of God on earth. Uh, according to Irenaeus, Simon is the first Gnostic and the font of all Gnosticism. Simon is God incarnate and a trinity. 
According to Irenaeus, Simon claims that he appeared as a fa the father to the Samaritans, the son to the Jews, and the Holy Spirit to all nations. Simon also, well, actually not Simon, but his followers said that he was Jesus in disguise. And um, it should be noted, too, that uh, the Trinity that Simon is talking about uh, indicates that he came from an Egyptian matrix. Because in, Egypt, in the Egyptian mythos, uh, you always have a supreme triad for the divine. In other words, you will have the father, the son, and the child. We know, most of you know, this trinity as uh, Hor, as I'm sorry, Osiris, Isis, and Horus. And even the Sethians, when you read something like uh, the secret book of John, uh, you, will, you will see that the supreme divinity is divided into the invisible spirit, bar below, and the Christ or the child. So this is an indication or one of many that Simon really, his origins were in Egypt. Again, uh, his followers did say that Simon was Jesus. Please keep this in mind. And again, he becomes with Irenaeus, it really gets supercharged that he becomes the arch enemy and arch Gnostic to the church, the fountainhead of all sin. Again, he was a really bad guy. Now we will continue with Irenaeus. Irenaeus really develops the story of Ellen. And in this mythology, Ellen was the first thought or annoyer of God. She is basically wisdom incarnate or the bar below in the Gnostic teachings. And as creation is happening and emanating, you have, yes, guess what happens? The angels get jealous, the archons, if you would, and they kidnapped Ellen, or the first thought or annoia of God, and they take her down to earth and they cast her in the flesh, where she reincarnates throughout history. One of her incarnations is Ellen of Troy, but she keeps uh, reincarnating through history as the angels try to hide her from the undivided consciousness, the great power. So what does the uh, undivided consciousness do? Well, what would the, the undivided consciousness do? Well, become a man and look for his first thought. Uh, some of you would notice that this is definitely a parallel with the Gnostic system of the invisible spirit who manifests bar below, consciousness and his experiencer. You find this in Hinduism with Shiva and Shakti or Shiva and Prakiti consciousness as, and its experiencer. But in this uh, case, uh, the other emanations, the angels uh, get jealous and screw things up. So Simon manifests as a human being, and he looks for Helen across history, and he finally finds her, well, he finds her as Helen, and she is a prostitute in Tyre. Simon frees Helen, and both seek to free other humans with special gnosis, as by now the angels have taken over the world and are making a big mess of things. Irenaeus also tells her that the Simonians are basically sex happy, they're libertine, they're party animals, they enjoy using magic, exorcism, incantations, 
and are known to control familiars and dream senders. So you've got this, uh, yeah, wild party, Simon and Ellen across history, don't you? Uh, the other church fathers basically echo what Simon Magus, what Irenaeus and Justin Martyr said. Uh, they keep uh, repeating the story, maybe tweaking it here and there, the story of the great power and Enoya incarnating as Simon and Ellen. Um, some say that Simon referred to himself as the standing one or Faustus. Uh, Irenaeus, in his, uh, there is a passage where he, he accuses the Gnostics of having the wrong Gnosis. He says the church has the right Gnosis. And he says that these Gnostics have Gnosis falsely called. And he's, but he's actually not referring to the Sethians or the Valentinians. He's referring to the Simonians. Those are the ones who have really corrupted the idea of Gnosis. The followers of Simon are known as uh, Simonians, but there were some groups who leaned more towards Ellen, and they were known as the Ellenites. In many passages, Ellen is always, well, no surprise to you guys, she's identified as Athena or Sophia. Simon is often identified with either Zeus or the God above God, the undivided consciousness or the great power. So why don't we talk about Simon, Magus, and legend? We just, uh, the church fathers wrote a lot, he's in the Bible. And uh, not surprising, there's a lot about Simus, Simon Magus in the church history and in Christian legends. The most notable one would have to be the so-called Clementine literature. And this is, uh, although it is attributed to Clement of Rome, it's actually uh, novelized, uh, some say Christian fiction that came around the third or fourth century and is chock full of all these wonderful apocryphal Christian legends. And there's plenty to do with Simon Magus. According to the so-called Clementine literature, Simon was from Samaria, from the village of Gita, but he went to study magic with John the Baptist in Alexandria. That's where John had his headquarters. John had 30 disciples, one for every day of the month, including Ellen, although she's referred to as Luna, Latin for moon. And she represented the moon, while John, the leader of this group, represented the sun. Jesus had a parallel movement, and he had his own magicians, 12 magicians or disciples representing the zodiac. According to the so-called Clementine literature, Simon was John's favorite magician, not Jesus, and Simon was the heir to his mysteries. So you guys probably know what happened in the story. John the Baptist went and got himself killed. Herod cut off his head. And uh, so now there's no, uh, you might say, leader of this group. And Simon is not in Alexandria to claim leadership. What happens is there is a, a group of the 30, his name is Docetheus, he takes over the group, and then Simon finally arrives and defeats him in a magical battle. It's a very short battle, if you would, because uh, Docetheus basically tries to strike him with his staff, and uh, Simon just turns into smoke, Docetheus realizes this guy is too powerful, 
and uh, he just gives up he says simon you're you're in charge man you're the leader and then oddly enough dosethius dies shortly afterward so simon takes over this group of magicians he confesses his love for ellen and they become a couple a power couple uh he also kind of surprises everybody because breaking away from john he declares this gnostic theology that this world is ru ruled by the demiurge or a lower god that uh, this place is a prison and there's archons and all that but simon basically says this is this is the truth about the world and uh, he and his group begin to spread across the roman empire getting more followers and they were known to perform great magical feats like shape-shifting, moving mountains, flying, dethroning kings, tyrannical, and much more. They really made an effect across the world with Simon Magus in charge of things. But needless to say, the so-called Clementine literature was written by mainstream Christians, so I must tell you that the ending is, again, like in Acts of the Apostles, not going to be very good for Simon. In fact, it's going to be even worse. So what happens is that, yes, you've got the conflict with Peter one more time. In many contradicting accounts, Simon debates and magically battles Peter. This time we've raised it to magical battles. And they fight in the cities of Antioch and Laodicea. Eventually, their big brawl, their superhero brawl, ends up in Rome. And uh, what happens is that Simon calls upon demons to fly, but then Peter prays to Yahweh for these demons to fail or leave him, and Simon falls to his death. And that's the end of Simon Magus. And as you can see, this picture, this picture here is actually a fresco, I believe, found in Rome in the 14th, I think it's 14th century, and it's actually titled The Death of Simon Magus. And there's a lot of art uh, that you'll find on this battle between Peter and Simon Magus. So it's very interesting. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to hero.co to shop today. What I want to work to is be, they, they, again, they get into these magical battles, but what is truly fascinating is the discussion that Simon has with Peter. In one section, Simon Magus tells Peter, and I quote, I say that there are many gods, but one God of all these gods, incomprehensible and unknown to all. My belief is that there is a power of immeasurable and ineffable light, whose greatness is held to be incomprehensible, a power which the maker of the world even does not know nor does Moses the lawgiver, nor your master Jesus. So Simon Magus is basically telling him, no, you got it wrong. It's the Gnostic theology that is the truth, the two-God idea. In another part, and I think this is even more amazing, Simon tells Peter, but you will, as it were, bewildered with astonishment, 
constantly stop your ears that they should not be defiled by blasphemies, and you will turn to flight, for you will find nothing to reply. But the foolish people will agree with you, indeed will come to love you, for you teach what is customary with them, but they will curse me, for I proclaim something new and unheard of. And I think this is fascinating, and I think this is very important, because what we see here is truly the dividing line in history, in early early Christianity, and probably before Christianity, between Gnosticism or the mythical uh, path and orthodoxy and mainstream. And the two figures, Simon Magus and Peter Simon, represent this divide. Simon Magus represents um, the mystical, the innovative, the dangerous, the explorative, the lunar chaos powers, the idea of independence and individuality and uh, carving your own way through life. On the other hand, we have Simon Peter, and he represents mainstream ideas, uh, ritual, ritualistic living, faith, uh, the, the collective versus the individual, the playing it safe, the, the, the left brain and the civilization and all that. So you have this fascinating dichotomy and I would say that the uh, the power or the figures of Simon Magus and Simon Peter is something that exists within each one of us. We all have, on some archetypal or union level, a Simon Magus and a Simon Peter telling us what to do. I'm not even going to judge which one's better or worse, but these two powers exist within us, and they exist outside in so many ideologies of movements, and they existed very starkly uh, and very obviously in early Christian times with the amount of energy that the early church gave to this uh, to these figures, Simon Magus and Simon Peter. It's a struggle, and it's a struggle within us. The, the pseudo-Clementines are obviously not the only time where Simon Magus and Peter go at it. You find it in Acts of Peter and Paul. In this one, Simon and Peter are each required before the emperor of Rome to raise a dead body to life. Simon, by his magic, makes the head move. But as soon as his will leaves the dead body, it again becomes lifeless. Peter, however, by his prayers, effects a real resurrection. As a contest continues, both are challenged to divine what the other's planning. Peter prepares blessed bread in secret. Simon cannot guess what Peter has been doing, and so raises hellhounds who rush on Peter. But the presentation of the blessed bread causes them to vanish. In Acts of Nereus and Achilles, Simon had fastened a great dog at his door in order to prevent Peter from entering. Peter, by making the sign of the cross, renders the dog tame towards himself, but so furious against his master Simon that the latter had to leave the city in disguise, because Simon got chased out by his own dogs. So these are just two examples of Simon Magus and Peter, again, this this powerful duality that we see in early Christianity. So, Do we know, now this is great, as we can see, there was a lot of energy and a lot of ink writing about Simon Magus. 
But did Simon Megas actually write anything himself? Well, actually, he did. Well, we what Simon Megas wrote uh, is called the Great Declaration, and this is taken from Hippolytus's refutation of all heresies. Hippolytus, as I've talked before, he wrote huge tomes. I've done, talked about in presentations of the Nicenes but he actually quotes all of the great declaration and then writes commentary. So what scholars have done is simply take out the sections where he's quoting uh, the great declaration and we can have the entire text of Simon Magus. And it's a fascinating text. Some have told me, and I think rightly so, that it is very mystic Jewish and even proto-Kabbalah. It is, uh, yeah, it's, it's an incredible, it's basically Simon giving this incredibly esoteric re reinterpretation of Genesis, the creation story in the Garden of Eden. But again, it, it just smacks as something a Kabbalist could have written centuries later. At the same time, you can tell it is heavily influenced by Stoicism. Uh, remember where there is smoke, there is fire, I said at the beginning. Well, you have it, well, you have it here. According to Simon Magus, God is fire and it is burning sentient energy. It reminds you of something Heraclitus would have said or some of the later Stoics because where they say the universe is an eternal fire that's cyclical. Simon Magus writes about this in his cosmology, fire gives birth to mind, again, the great power and gives and gives life to the first thought, the Anoia. What is interesting about the Great Declaration is that human beings are not made in the image of God, but they are made in the image of Anoya. She is the mother of all. In other words, the, the Adam Cadman, the, the, the great hermaphrodite, the primal man is all based on the female aspect of God, all based on Anoya. If you're interested in reading the Great Declaration, at my website, I have a tr uh, translation uh, kindly provided by Robert Price. There's a link. I'll have it in the show notes. and uh, Or you just go to the God Above God and uh, type in Great Declaration Simon Magus. It will pop out. And uh, Bob, beautiful, uh, beautiful translation and includes a nice summary of the entire text. So I would definitely uh, check it out. According to scholar Carl Luckert, he believes that um, the Great Declaration is uh, Heliopolitan. It comes from the, the Egyptian city Heliopolis and because of these various ideas that you find in the texts and so forth. So again, another connection to Egyptian thought. Here is a diagram of Simon Magus's cosmology. This one's provided by J.R.S. Meads, who was uh, Madame Blavatsky's secretary and a translator of occult texts. So as you can see, you see the typical mystical Hellenistic or Gnostic breakdown of the universe, the stars, very alchemical. You see the first power there. You see the Anoya, something you guys can check out, but... Uh, this is, uh, again, it seems very uh, proto-Kabbalistic, if you ask me. Certainly, you can notice a lot of alchemical astral things, but here is, uh, the, here is Simon Magus's diagram. What should be noted is that unlike 
what the church fathers later on said was Simon's theology, the great declaration splits from it. In other words, it's not as dualistic. In the great declaration, there are no evil or bad angels or fallen world. Everything is just moving as the great fire wills it. And so it one may, so we always wondered, what, did Simon Magus really start out that Gnostic? It was his Gnosticism added by the church fathers, or is the declaration written by somebody else who still, who might have been related or, or part of Simon's organization and added his name and decided uh, it, he wasn't going to be as Gnostic as Simon was uh, depicted by other church fathers. Again, we are connecting dots here. I don't, uh, we're just connecting dots and following that smoke. So your guess is as good as mine, but it's an interesting distinction between uh, the great declaration and uh, what the church fathers talked about Simon's theology. So let's go back to Acts of the Apostles. And I titled this, Did We Miss Sophia in the New Testament? Well, I think we did. Remember that passage I quoted? Uh, let me quote again in Acts 8. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Now, if you look at the Greek, the word thought is epinoia. Now, the epinoia is... Uh, and this was noted by uh, German scholar Gerd Ludemann, the word epinoia, especially when you look at the Great Declaration, when you look at Gnostic texts, the word epinoia is a synonym for the enoia, the first thought of God. It's also a synonym for Sophia. And it's interesting that this is the only place in the entire New Testament where the word epinoia is used. In other words, Luke or whoever wrote Acts was putting there that on purpose and is basically saying that Simon has a problem and it's not his thought is that he believes in the epinoia, that if he can get Sophia or the enoia out of his heart, he'll be okay. Just get rid of Sophia. That's what's causing him problems. Get rid of the divine feminine. So it's a very interesting thing that was, you might say, added in Acts to show that Sophia is there and how the church wanted to get it out and uh, skillfully show how Simon should get rid of his uh, divine female divine counterpart. And it should be said, of course, that, yeah, Sophia does appear in other places, as researchers Alex Rivera and uh, Tim Klassen have shown, the woman with the clothed with the stars, the moon and the stars in Revelation is definitely uh, harkens back to uh, the mysteries of the Hebrews, to Asherah, to the queen of heaven. So she's a very much a Sophianic figure. And I'm sure all of you here agree, Mary Magdalene is definitely a um, material manifestation of Sophia. So Sophia is found in the New Testament, but here's one place that was hidden for a long time, and now we have found it. So that's an interesting theory. Let's look at some other interesting theories about Simon Magus. One of them is that Simon Magus was the apostle Peter. And it's not even a new theory. 
the Ebionites. They were a third century Gnostic sect. Uh, they, they were more Jewish Christian. They believed Jesus was uh, a normal man. They accused Paul of being Simon Magus. They use uh, Simon Magus as a, as a cipher for uh, all the negativity they wanted to uh, incur on Paul in their texts. But later on, you had the scholars like F.C. Bauer and the Dutch radicals notice something. What they notice is if you look at Galatians, there is a part where Paul, there's a famine in Jerusalem, and Paul is raising money to buy food for the people in Jerusalem. But by doing this, he gets into a conflict with the heads of the early church. That would be James the Just and Peter and their budding heads. So F.C. Bauer said that perhaps Acts is sort of a, a hidden story or allegory because, A, on one hand, you've got Paul trying to raise money, which will give him stature in the new church. In other words, he's kind of trying to buy the Holy Spirit. And then you have the story of Simon, who's actually buying, trying to buy the Holy Spirit. So there is this sort of weird parallel there that could tell us that perhaps Simon Magus was the cipher of Paul all along. Beyond that, there are some obvious parallels. Both Paul and Simon preach the idea of lower angels ruling the universe. Both declare the Mosaic law to be inferior and the reality of a transcendent God. Both became the foundation of much Gnostic thought. Paul was very influential with the Sethians and Valentinians. Both had a female consort. Simon had Helen and Paul had Thecla in the apocryphal text. So that's a very interesting theory about Paul and Simon being one in the same. Another theory takes, you might maybe even takes it even up a notch. Uh, before I get that, if you want more on this, uh, check out my interview with Robert Price, Simon Magus, the father of all heresy. There's the link. I'll have it in the show notes. And uh, there Bob gives us an entire hour on Simon Magus and really uh, develops more the case about uh, Simon Magus and Paul being the same character. As I said, raising it up a notch, we've got John Munter and his excellent book, The Samaritan Jesus. And he basically argues that Simon Magus might have been the big guy, Jesus. Remember at the beginning of the presentation, I said that the Simonians themselves said that Simon Magus and Jesus were one and the same. But according to John, very briefly, both Simon and Jesus, Jesus were magicians, they were Trinitarians, they were key disciples of John the Baptist, both Simon and Jesus channeled spirits, and both had a chief female disciple. Again, Simon had Ellen, and Jesus had Mary Magdalene. Then John, John does an excellent job. Again, you know how these stories kind of are could be allegories or parallels. So John shows that in history, in Apocrypha, in the Bible, Gnostic text, you have these characters appearing and they all have these sort of parallel stories, parallel identities. So it's almost like Mary Magdalene and Ellen, Ellen, a queen of Adiabne, Luna, who the name of Ellen when she was disciple of John, they all could be the same person. And this goes with other figures that are found. And when you put them together, you almost see one story 
but all these characters sort of split apart uh, to, I don't know, protect the innocent or satisfy the communities of these people writing them. Other than that, uh, the church father Tertullian in the late second century, he himself said that Jesus was, yes, a Samaritan like Simon. So this is also another fascinating argument. I did interview John on this in our show, Jesus Christ is Simon Magus. There's the link. And again, I will have this on the show notes. Great interview. And uh, yeah, who's the real Simon Magus? And why? Who's, who's dressing up in drag? Is it Paul or Jesus? Let me get a drink of water. And um, Simon Magus does continues in history in other ways. Um, and for those of you who can see these pictures, these two wild pictures, there's a great story behind them. This is from the movie, The Silver Chalice, which came out in 1952. It's the first movie that Paul Newman was ever in. And he later disavowed the film saying it's the worst motion picture produced during the fifties. But Paul Newman was starting and Paul Newman actually plays this guy who is trying to make the silver chalice, which will later become the Holy Grail. And this movie is wild. It's based on a novel of the same name. And uh, in this movie, it's just a hodgepodge of Christian figures interacting like the Apostle Luke, Luke and Joseph of Arimathea and so many others. And yes, Simon Magus appears. You see that guy there? That's Jack Palance playing Simon Magus. And yes, that looks like what somebody would wear in the first century, right? A red suit with some black sperm floating around. But in this scene, that's uh, Jack Palance as Simon Magus, and he's on top of the tower. He's calling upon, he goes on top of the tower. He calls upon the daemons. Peter prays, and Jack Palance, well, slash Simon Magus jumps off the tower and dies. To the left, we've got a young Natalie Wood, one of her first roles too, and she plays, yes, a young Ellen. So I think that's a great casting to have Natalie Wood play Ellen, and well, look at Jack Palance again. So I thought I'd simply mention it because it's fascinating. But anyway, not all Gnostics like Simon Magus. If you read the Nag Hammadi Library's Testimony of Truth and Apocalypse of Peter, they, whoever, the figures behind them hate Simon Magus too, and they, sl they slam Simon Magus on his followers. I mentioned Docetheus too. According in the Nag Hammadi Library, there's a figure called Docetheus who wrote the Three Stellas of Seth, which is a Sethian non-Christian work. And I, I don't know if it's the same Docetheus that tried to usurp Simon's power. Docetheus was uh, not that uncommon of a name, but you never know. It could be the same Docetheus. Again, we're connecting a lot of dots. As some have said, Goethe's Faust is based directly on Simon Magus. Uh, according to Irish legends, uh, Simon Magus came to be associated with Druidism. In fact, some have said he is the font of Druidism as he is of Gnosticism. I've always wondered in the New Testament, could the Good Samaritan really be Simon Magus? You never know. I mean, we also have the scene where Jesus, where Simon the Serene asks, helps Jesus carry the cross for a while. And you always wonder, is this another uh, cipher for Simon that's put in there for reasons? What about the game, Simon says? 
Well, I hate to disappoint you, but that's not actually Simon Magus. This game appears across the world with different names, but it's, it is in a way connected to Gnosticism. As some scholars have noticed, Simon says is based on Simon de Montfort. He was a 13th century English-French noble, and he was known to be so rich and powerful that whatever he said happened. But guess what Simon de Montfort was in charge of too? He was the one who spearheaded the Albigensian crusade. He was the one that eventually destroyed the Cathars. But I thought it was interesting and uh, a pseudo connection, if you would. Now we get into another, perhaps I feel the most fascinating theory. And you may think this title is kind of weird. It's uh, the Rolling Stones or the Beatles. Why am I saying that? Well, these are. this is an idea that actually two, uh, two great books agree on. One is by Tobias Churton, The Mysteries of John the Baptist. The other one is When God Had a Wife by Lynn Pignett and Clive Prince. And both have been on my show and both are really excellent books. In the middle, you have a picture of Joaquin Phoenix and uh, Rooney Mara. You basically have the Joker and the girl of the dragon tattoo playing Jesus and Mary Magdalene, respectively. It's from the movie Mary Magdalene that came out a few years ago. I've, I haven't watched it, but I hear it's not very good. But I thought I'd put it there because what Tobias Churton and Lynn Picknett and Clive Prince posit is that there are, if you notice by now, there is some striking parallels and similarities with these two power couples, Simon Magus and Ellen and Jesus and Mary Magdalene. So, but they are a bit different, right? You have Jesus and Mary Magdalene are more conservative, more mainstream, more chill. They're kind of like the Beatles. But then you have Simon Magus and Ellen, who are like the Rolling Stone. They're party animals. They're, ha they're doing magic. They're loud and boisterous and just flashy all over the Roman Empire, and they just don't care. So it's almost you have these two power couples, and it depends on your preference, whether you prefer the Rolling Stones or the Beatles. But you may be wondering, well, could they be the same couple? That is a possibility. Or could they be, as uh, Lynn Pignett and Clive Prince say, could they be actually two couples with uh, similar missions on this world? And in fact, Tobias Churton agrees with this. He feels, and so does uh, Lynn Pignett and Clive Prince, that Jesus Christ and Mary Magdalene and Simon Magus and Ellen had two jobs on this planet. One, keeping the ancient mystery religions of the Hebrews alive, the cult of Aishira, the shamanistic vibe that one existed, and uh, the sort of magical tradition that had so slowly been quashed by the Yahweh cult and the rice of the, of the second temple and all that. That was their job, keeping this Gnostic contraband away from the, from the eyes of orthodoxy. The other was that they were magic users, part of a secret order that was there to keep the Watchers, the Nephilim, the Archons, the bad angels in check. 
They were here to make sure that the spiritual wickedness in high places didn't completely take over the world and squash the collective soul of humanity. So, and I think there's a merit in both books explain this and both books agree. I think there is some merit, but whether Jesus and Mary Magdalene and Simon Magus and Ellen are the same person, I don't know, but uh, the parallels are just too darn striking, if you ask me. So as you can see, Simon Magus was extremely important, dangerous, feared, uh, notorious, and perhaps essential for the fabric of reality in ancient times. But well, should he be important today? I mean, what does he have to do with modern Gnosticism? Well, some very big figures in modern Gnosticism would agree with me. One of them is, yes, Philip K. Dick. In uh, his exegesis, Philip K. Dick writes, I think anyone versed in Gnosticism who read my notes would say, you're a Gnostic. I am not happy about this, but it is so. Based on 374, Simon Magus lives. So when Philip K. Dick had his powerful moments of gnosis where he saw reality as it was, he knew that in the backdrop, he knew was Simon Magus. He knew that the core essence of Gnosticism was Simon Magus. In uh, Vallis, he does mention Simon Magus. Philip K. Dick says, the great secret known to, to Apollonius of Tyan, Paul of Tarsus, Simon Magus, Asclepius, Paracelsus, Bema, and Bruno is that we are moving backward in time. The universe, in fact, is contracting into a unitary entity, which is completing itself. Decay and disorder are seen by us in reverse as increasing. These healers learn to move forward in time, which is retrograde to us. Interesting how he puts uh, Simon Magus and Paul of Tarsus uh, right next to each other. Wonder about that. But Philip K. Dick certainly saw the importance of Simon Magus with a lot less material than we had. We're talking in the early 70s. So that's Philip K. Dick. Uh, any other big figures that like Simon Magus? Well, perhaps the biggest one yet, or when it comes to modern Gnosticism, and that is Carl Jung. Uh, this picture here, which he drew, that is from the Red Book. And as some of you may know, the Red Book is the foundation for all of Jung's ideas. This is the story of him going down into the underworld and finding his soul and coming up with this powerful gnosis for the ages. And the Red Book, his uh, spirit guide, his higher power, his daemon is called Philemon. But as we find out in, as Jung goes in his journey, and he mentions this in the Red Book, and he mentions this also in the Black Book, and in a letter he wrote in 1911, Philemon is not Philemon. It seems Jung was also hiding the identity of Philemon. Philemon is, yes, Simon Magus. So Simon Magus becomes the foundation or the guide of Jung as he goes down into the underworld and a very important figure for both Jung and Philip K. Dick. So I think you might wanna agree with me or perhaps you agree that all roads do lead to Simon Magus. Certainly all roads of awakening, of Gnosis, of modern Gnosticism. And 
I already talked about this, these two powerful forces within us and outside of us, these archetypal forces that manifest as Simon Magus and Simon Peter. But I feel there's so much more. I mean, Simon and Ellen's story is about the alchemical wedding, the bridal chamber, the, uh, the hierogamos, the anima and animas joining together within us, in nature, in the cosmos themselves. They are the sun and the moon uniting in dream time. So uh, that's another powerful story. And uh, again, Simon Magus is the great representation of the mysterious, the magical, the myth, the math. And the myth, magic, and meaning, the taking a daring exploration to fight the angels and discover yourself. And more than anything, I think Simon Magus and Ellen really represent the tagline of Aeon Bite, write your own gospel and live your own myth, because that's exactly what Simon Magus did. And he created a whole legend around him or a whole persona, a mask. And this persona, again, leads to wholeness, leads to so many different tributaries of myth and archetypal images and so forth. So at the end of the day, I feel Simon Magus is very important. And if you have Gnosis, you're going to run and you'll see that smoke and you will run into that great fire of creation itself, that fire that is within each one of us. And you can just call that fire our divine spark. So let's get to some questions. And some of you may be wondering right now, uh, Miguel, why do you have Val Kilmer there? Well, that's interesting too. That is from the 1997 movie, The Saint, based on the TV series, The Saint, played by Roger Moore, which is based on a novel series. And the, the hero's name is Simon Templar. But in this movie, the 1997 version, Simon Templar at the beginning of the movie just confesses he goes I am Simon Magus so I thought it'd be an interesting thing to bring out old Val Kilmer for this as we end so that is my presentation and here we are again what'd you think What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.